We have a new trinity. This morning I'd like you to turn to Psalm 143. This is Romans. It's our 37th message, lesson, teaching, whatever you want to call it. Now, in just two weeks, the ninth annual Bolathon, don't forget it, April 7th, 2018, from 1 to 4, and the forms for that, to sign up for it, are right out on our information table. Information is power. And thank you for your kind generosity on behalf of Ralph and his ministry of Vision Beyond Borders. And your generosity really was demonstrated in the gift of the many clothing, is it, Ralph? Lots, lots. How many bags do you get? 20, 20 bags. That's awesome. Generous congregation. The message today is simply called, No One Alive. And just before I came in, I didn't have time to put it in my notes. It's, it's up here. This is, I can't read it now, so. But it's a, I was studying the Targums for quite a while when we were studying John's Gospel. If you remember, the Targums are essentially a, writing of the Old Testament with commentary. Much of the commentary is quite extraordinary and inspired. One verse of all the Targums that I read stuck in my mind ever since that day, and it came out today, emerged into my conscious mind in a very powerful way. And it's, it sounds like this. It's Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine, but it's from Targum... Neophyte, Targum, that's T-A-R-G-U-M, and then Neophyte was a particular brand of Targums with the commentaries connected to the translation of the Pentateuch, of the prophets, of Esther, and others. Some of these Targums only were found under a lot of other papers at the Vatican, believe it or not, and they were discovered. Otherwise, they would have been discarded. But Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine, Targum Neophyte. The Lord says this, See now that I, I in my memra, memra is a word that keeps showing up in the Targums. It's equivalent to the word, word or logos, And so I don't think John got the word logos for word from any Greek stuff or from Philo or from any of the Hellenistic writers. I think he got it from the Jewish Targums, and I'll show you why. See now that I, I in my memra, or I in my word, am he. That's Yahweh. I in my word am he. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there is no other God beside me. I am he who causes the living to die in this world and who brings the dead to life 
in the world to come. Strange, but very powerful words. I am he who causes the living to die in this world and who brings the dead to life in the world to come. That's very interesting for our time because we live at the end of that old world and the beginning of the new world. So there is a point in time in which we both die and are made alive by him. Then he says, I am he who smites and I am he who heals. And there is no one who can rescue from my hand. Now, Who would want to be rescued from his hand? Jesus actually took this up in John 10, 28 and said, I give unto them eternal life. Unto who? Unto those that are dead in sins. I give to them eternal life and no one rescues them out of my hand. No one snatches them out of my hand. I and my father are one. My father is greater than all, he says, anticipating that the father will be all in all. And no one plucks them out of my father's hand. Add that to Psalm 143.2, which is one of the most critical verses. Now, we've already done eight messages on Jeremiah. I'm not going to do another one. I'm going to show you how Jeremiah fans out through Romans in our continual exegesis until we finish Romans. The eight messages I did on them, including the 18th and 19th lesson and then several Sundays in a row, we're going to leave them now and watch how they fan out in the the teachings to come. Today I want to consider Psalm 143.2, which in the Septuagint is 142.2, and it says this, Do not enter into judgment with your servant. This is the prayer of the psalm writer. It says to God, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, because no one living, nobody alive, otherwise known as no flesh in other places, is justified or will be justified in your sight. No one living will be justified in your sight. I am he who kills and makes alive. No one living will be justified in God's sight. That exhausts any human means. There's no human means. That means by the human act of works of the law, no living being will be justified in God's view. In men's view, yeah. God's view, uh uh-uh. That means that the human act of believing is not the means of justifying humans before God. That's another human means. I'm going to show you how this works. There is a set of words deployed in Romans. This again, Sunday mornings, I'm getting into Romans in toto. That is Romans in its totality. I'm saying, what is Romans? 
And we're showing the entire epistle. We're displaying it. Whereas Wednesdays and Thursdays, we're doing the pincer movement and coming at the center. Now, Romans in toto, in its totality, is to be understood partly by what I call dikaio, D-I-K-A-I-O. In the Greek, it looks like this, D-I-K-A-I-O. Dikaio-rooted words. That word dikaio in the verbal form is usually translated as justify, rectify, set right, or make right. The the noun form dikaiosune is usually translated as righteousness. There's dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God. The gospel highlights and apocalypses God's righteousness. God's righteousness, the righteousness of God in the key verse of Romans, the thesis verse, Romans 117, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, startlingly, astonishingly revealed. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 7116 and 7121, I will speak of His righteousness all day long. My own righteousness? Don't have any. Paul said, I no longer have any righteousness of my own. But the righteousness of God that comes through the faithfulness of Christ. I don't glory in that other righteousness. We belong to the true circumcision, he said in Philippians 3, 1. And we boast in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence at all in the flesh. And we worship and serve by the Spirit. Don't enter into judgment with your servant. Because no one living is justified in your sight. Dikaio words are deployed 36 times. Times, dikaio rooted words, whether it's the noun, the adjective, the verb, or a word like dikaioma, which means the one righteous act of Jesus Christ, which is the justifying act of God for all humankind. Dikaio words 36 times in Romans. Dikaio rooted words 36 times in Romans. The verb form for dikaio, for justification, is used, or justify, is used eight times in Galatians. Elsewhere in all of Paul's epistles, it's used a total of four more times. One in 1 Corinthians 4.4, in a way that's not related to its sense in Romans and Galatians. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, he simply says to the Corinthians, once you were all these kinds of people, now you are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Justification, in other words, he advertises there as an entirely divine action in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.11, the only time it's used in 1 Corinthians except for verse 4. It's not used there in a rhetorical argument. It simply states a fact 
about the Corinthian saints that they have been justified by a divine action. Titus 3.7 uses the word in the phrase justified by his grace. His grace is adventitious grace. That means it's utterly and totally outside of ourselves. We are saved from outside of ourselves and we are pulled outside of ourselves in salvation. That's very important. It is by grace, God's adventitious grace outside of us through faithfulness and that not ours, but Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8. So Titus 3.7 uses the word justified by his grace in connection with a salvation according to God's mercy and not according to righteous deeds, which we have done. And it's also in accordance to a washing called regeneration and by the generous outpouring of the spirit. Titus 3.5 through 7 then rhymes perfectly with its use in 1 Corinthians 6.11. In the strangest use of the word dikaio for justify, 1 Timothy 3.16, the object of the verb dikaio is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God in the flesh, manifested, seen by angels, justified by the Spirit, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, Taken up in glory. Great is the mystery that brings about true piety. That's something I want to look at in the future a lot more closely. First Timothy three sixteen. But the pass this passage is not quite how it's used in Romans. Only in Galatians and only in Romans is Dikaio a centerpiece and an important debate about the nature of the true gospel. In Romans thesis verse, Romans 117, we're getting close to a, my final translation on it. The righteousness of God, dikaiosune theu, is apocalypsed, startlingly revealed and universally apocalypsed in the gospel. From faithfulness to faithfulness. Now, if the righteousness of God is spoken of here, and it's manifested in faith to faith, it's not my faith or your faith or anyone else's faith. It's God's righteousness through his faithfulness to faithfulness. God's righteousness, here's my translation so far of Romans 117. It's not come into total focus yet. The righteousness of God is apocalypsed in the gospel, from his faithfulness, that means his faithfulness in Christ, to his faithfulness, that's his faithfulness in Christ in us. Because, just as it is written, skip the because, just as it is written, the righteous one, and that's Jesus Christ, not according to the Reformation, the righteous one being someone who is declared righteous through their personal faith. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a Christocentric reading. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. God has made him to be righteousness for us. The Torah, the law, was once considered to be that which was for righteousness. 
Now, Christ is for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The big 10-4. Romans 10-4. So as it is written in Habakkuk 2-4, the righteous one, that's Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God and who is the righteousness of God for us, in whom we have been made the righteousness of God, That's all bracketed commentary. So we have again, just as it is written, the righteous one will live. That means in resurrection, a prophecy of the resurrection of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The righteous one will live from his faithfulness. Ek pistios. That means the faithfulness being spoken of here is the faithfulness of the righteous one, which justifies all of mankind who have died in Adam. That's Romans 5.18. Now, this is all going to piece together. I'm hitting it kind of piecemeal. It'll all piece together. When we're done with Romans, you'll see Romans in its totality, and it will display to you the glory of God. So as it is written, he, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live... That's in resurrection, a prophecy of his resurrection, which now is a fulfilled prophecy, out from his faithfulness. His faithfulness here, as we will see throughout the rest of Romans, is his death, which occurred as the climax of his faithful obedience. He will live in resurrection as a result of and out from his faithful obedience to the extent of crucifixion. At the heart and center of the gospel, therefore, is Christ and him crucified. I've determined to know nothing and to communicate nothing that isn't radically attached to that. If it's not radical, militant, adventitious grace, it ain't grace at all. And it isn't God's gospel. And God's gospel is not, is, well, let's just say this, rarely being proclaimed today on Palm Sunday. In other words, the same audience that said, Lord, save us, Hosanna, and threw down palm branches, said, crucify him next week. So, to me, that ritual doesn't mean much, but that's just me. I'm sorry. Besides, Maurice de Simone forgot all the palms. He'll, he'll love me for that. God has made Jesus Christ to be, for us, righteousness. Now, if you want verses for that, I can only let the implications dawn on you. They'll dawn on you Easter morning, maybe, when Christ raised from the dead. They'll dawn on you like a risen Savior. God has made him to be, for us, righteousness. That's 1 Corinthians one thirty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, still in the Corinthian correspondence, he has made him to be sin for us that we might become and be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might become and be made the righteousness of God in him. He has made him to be sin so that we can be the righteousness of God in him. And he has therefore made him the righteousness of God for us. 
So if the gospel is therein, is the apocalypse of the righteousness of God, what is it other than the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God for us? Glad we went to Revelation first. Every eye will see him. Who? The righteousness of God in a crucified Savior with nail-scarred hands and feet. Every eye will see him especially the eyes of those who pierced him, even the eyes of those who pierced him, for whom he died in substitution. So in 1 Corinthians one thirty, God has made Christ to be righteousness for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God has made Jesus Christ to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'll let the implications of this dawn on you. Only the Holy Spirit can bring them home to you. Now, just to let you know, as a congregation, and I am your servant for Christ's sake, don't enter into judgment with me because there's no one righteous in God's sight. But the German theologian Gerhard Ford, F-O-R-D-E, wrote this, and this is from a book that was published in 2018. Just want you to know I'm on the cutting or the bleeding edge of theology. It's from a book from Philip Ziegler of Aberdeen in Scotland called Militant Grace, The Apocalyptic Turn in Christian Theology. And I just got the book yesterday. No, the 20th. What's the 20th? Whatever. The first day of spring. He quotes Gerhard Ford, and this is fitting for the liturgical season that much of Christendom celebrates right now. Quote, death and resurrection is the primary reality. And this posits a radically different understanding of the way of salvation. Under the legal metaphor... Now, I may say, stop right here. The legal metaphor indicates an imputation of righteousness on the occasion of one's personal faith in Christ. That's not the way of salvation. What makes us think that an act of human faith is any more potent than an act of the law for receiving salvation. Who are we? Who, what, what do we think we are here? Under the legal metaphor, the subject is a continually existing one who does not die, but is merely altered by grace. It was always, Jesus will change your life. You'll still keep living, but Jesus will alter your life. He'll make you a better moral person. That's not the gospel. No one living will be justified in his sight. No one, the the gospel doesn't leave us living. It kills us deader than a doornail, then makes us alive as a new creation. That's justification. That's justification. It isn't he declares us righteous while we go on sinning and rebounding for the rest of our lives. Lord, our highest prayer being, Lord, I've sinned again. Lord, I've sinned again. Lord, I've sinned again. That's not the Christian way of life. You can have it if you want it. You can have that life if you want it. To me, I died in that life. God killed me softly with his song. 
He killed me softly. And he said, on one of the lowest days of my life, deeply depressed, completely inadequate, totally anxious, he says, you died. And now your life is hid with Christ in me. You see, I kill in this life, in this world. In the old age, I kill. In the new age, the new world, I make alive. It all happened in a split second. The old age is still here. But the new world has come in Jesus Christ. In a split second, he kills those alive in the old world and makes them alive in the new creation in an instant. That's what God does. And he does it in his word, as Jesus said, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am he. Who? The he of Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine of the Targums. The he who kills and makes alive. In the laying down of his life at Calvary, Jesus Christ died for us and killed all of us in our sin. And when he rose from the dead, we all came alive with him. Now, the implications of this are too much for you. They're too much for you. This is like a fish fry Friday. Only I was thinking of Lazarus and the rich man, and I'm building a message on that or a series, and I thought, I woke up one morning and a thought came to me. I won't say the Spirit said it, God said it, my said it. I won't say who said it, but it said you got bigger fish to fry. And here they are. Lazarus and the rich man is a bluegill. What we're doing here is Moby Dick. So, got bigger fish to fry. Gerhard Ford again got lost. I got lost for a minute. I love getting lost in the word because you end up somewhere else in the word. <laughs> it's one of those things where you go up to your ankles, like Ezekiel said, come on, man out in the sandbar says, come on. You go up to your ankles, and you're in a certain affiliation, and you go with the affiliation, and you say, I guess I'm set right here at my ankles. And the, and the man out there, the son of man says, keep coming. Well, if I do that, I'm going to leave that old affiliation, that old idea of justification by my personal faith. That, yeah, I said, come on. Now I'm up to my knees. Now things are a little brighter, and things are a little bit different, and I've left behind some things. Let's settle in right here. The Israel of God. I got it settled. There's not, it's not a dispensational thing. It's a plan of God, of eternal grace. Guess I'll stay here. No, come on. Wait a minute. Now I'm up to my waist. Well, you're not done yet. I'm up to my waist because you know what I discovered? The universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. That's only waist deep. Keep coming. If I do that, the current will take me. And I won't be on my own anymore. Precisely. Now the current takes us. 
Gerhard Ford goes on to say, salvation, you might say, that's under the old metaphor, is something of a repair job. Salvation is a repair job. There, we fixed a couple things. Now you gave up smoking and chewing and going with naughty girls or naughty boys, whatever. So you're repaired. You're still the same SOB or DOB or whatever, but you're repaired. Then he goes on to say, Death and resurrection as a real event, however, proposes quite a different way. The subject does not survive intact on his own steam, on its own steam, undergoing only certain alterations. What is involved is rather a matter of death and life, not life and death, death and life. Now, remember, when Jesus Christ brings justification to all humankind, it is called the justification of life, the justification that consists of life, but it's life from the dead in Romans 5, 18. He goes on to say there is new life. That the subject is made new is due to the action of God. That the subject is made new is due to the action of God. The resurrection in Christ, not to repairs made according to the legal scheme. To that I would add, and not to some outside declaration of our righteousness on the basis of our personal faith as a reward of our personally believing. That's not it either. Let me put it this way. Instead of saying death and react, death and resurrection is the primary reality, let me say it my way. Jesus is the primary reality. He is the reality of divinity. He is the reality of humanity. He is the reality of the new creation. Colossians 2.9, for example. In him resides the totality. Pleroma. In him resides the totality. Pleroma. Of deity. Divinity. All that God is. Without subtraction. All that God is. In him resides the totality of deity. Corporeally. Bodily. Somatikos. Says the Greek. In him resides the totality of deity. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you don't need to see me plus something else, he says. You've seen me, you see the totality of who the Father is. You see me crucified, you see the totality of who the Father is. You see me risen, you see the totality of who the Father is. In him resides at home permanently. The totality of deity. And then in verse 10, shocker, it says, and in him you have been made full. In him you have been made full. Plerao, the verb, matches pleroma, the noun. That means you have been made full as partakers of the divine nature. 
as partakers of the divine nature in Jesus Christ, you have been made fully human as a new creation in the man Christ Jesus. So I ask the question, how have we been made full in him? By being declared righteous on the basis of our personal faith in Jesus? No, not by being altered either. We haven't been fulfilled in him by being altered or by being repaired or by a reformation of the old self. Which is 90% of Christian testimony. I was once a bad self. Now I'm still the same self, but better. Thanks to Jesus. So by having, how did we become fulfilled in him? By having died with him. We died with him. Paul didn't say, I was justified with Christ, though he could. He said, I was crucified with Christ. If I'm justified by works, including the work of my personal faith, then Christ has died for nothing. Christ's death justified us. Romans 5, 9. If we have been justified by his blood... And how much more will we be saved from wrath through him? We've been justified by his blood. His blood is the climax of his obedience to the Father, his faithfulness to the Father to the extent of death, so that my righteous one will live in resurrection out from or as a result of his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. Say, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. Exactly. I'm letting the implications dawn on you by my teacher, your teacher, the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth and teaches us. You can't, I've heard this somewhere this week out in the hall, Pastor Brown, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Salvation isn't a repair job of the old man. You can only put new wine in new wineskins. God, how are you going to save me? Going to kill you and make you alive. Kill you in the old age, kill the old man, make you alive in the new age that's come in my son, which is now. It can all happen in a second. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Salvation is of the Lord, not of you. I made Christ your righteousness. I made you the righteousness my own righteousness in him. I did it. So how have we been made full in him? By being declared righteous so that you can go on as before, but have the privilege of continually rebounding when you sin, rebounding when you sin, And have every night be an accounting of all the sins you committed that day so you can confess them, so you can sleep well? No. And how can we, how have we been made full in him? By having died with him. We died with him. 
and by having been raised with him. Colossians again, 2.20. You died with Christ. You died with Christ. No one living will be justified in his eyes. No one living will be justified in his eyes. No one living will be justified in God's eyes. So you died. Because no one living would be justified. So you die. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, if people really believe that, you know what that is? The cure for depression. You died. The cure for neurotic anxiety. You died. The cure for curvaturae in say, You died. It seems like these feelings are so desperate in my kind of distorted love for the people I love and I'm concerned for that I wish I could just harden my heart and at least I'd be free of that concern. No, you don't harden your heart. You died. You don't have to. You died. I've been doing through so many trials lately. I must be cursed. No, Christ was cursed for you and he blessed you with these multitude of trials so that you can experience newness of life by his spirit. You're not cursed. How dare you say that? It's a denial of the one who has made a curse for you. You died with Christ to the elementor, elemental powers of this world. What are those? The elemental powers of this world. What are these stoichia? I'll tell you what they are. Sin is one of the elemental powers of this world. I kill in this world. Why? Because in this world, you are under the power of sin. I kill the person under the power of sin, under the power of death, which is a second elemental power, under the power of the law hijacked by sin, under the power of demonic principalities and powers. You died to all of those elemental powers. Colossians 2.20. Colossians 3, 1, you were raised with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Colossians 3, 3, you died and your life is hidden with the Christ in God. And when Christ is, verse 4, universally revealed, and that must be understood, the word phanerao here, an apocalyptic verb in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ is universally revealed, you say, What do you mean universally? He already has been revealed in the flesh, and a few people saw him. He has yet to be revealed in glory where every eye will see him. Every tongue will acknowledge praise to God through him. Every tongue will acknowledge allegiance to him and confess that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God. Every knee will genuflect. Every tongue will confess and All flesh, says Luke's universal gospel, not to be contradicted by a misinterpretation of a parable, Luke's universal gospel, which quotes John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah 40 and verse 5 in Luke 3, 6, all flesh all together will experience the salvation of God. So... When Christ is universally revealed, 
you will be revealed together with him in glory. Because you got a new system of boasting to go back to Jeremiah 9.24. You got a new valid system of boasting. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. That is of sharing that glory and of the hope of the glory of God that's destined to flood the earth. The knowledge of God will fill the earth so there'll be no need any longer for an evangelist saying, now know the Lord. There'll be no need of any preacher, an ambassador of Christ saying, be reconciled to God. All will know me from the the greatest to the least. Jeremiah 31 to 34. Because the glory of the Christ who is the glory of God and the gospel of the glory of the Christ which sheds abroad the knowledge of the glory of God, will be resplendent through all the earth. Jeremiah 9.24 with Habakkuk 2.14 and many passages of Psalms. I'm coming back home now. You died and your life is hid with Christ. And when Christ is universally revealed, Phanerao, you will be revealed with him in glory. Now, Back to dikaio words, dikaio rooted words. The reason Paul deals with this subject called justification, still debated hotly across the board today, the subject of what is justification. The reason Paul deals with dikaio in Romans and Galatians is because only in those two epistles and not in Corinthians and not in Thessalonians He is dealing with the combating of a Jewish Christian gospel, so-called, which proposes that a person can be rectified in God's eyes by the human action of doing works according to the law. Now, these preachers or teachers or a single teacher, as we're teaching in Romans and as Douglas Campbell brought up, teach and believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he came to confirm the covenants to the fathers, the Jewish fathers. But they also propounded the idea that you had to be as males circumcised and you had to fulfill the works of the law to be justified in God's eyes, to be rectified in the view of God. And some people think because of that, Paul is proposing the opposite, which is, No, we're justified by our faith, not our works. But what he's really teaching is not that contrast. We are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not by our works or our faith. That's what he's saying. That's the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, whether Jew first or Greek. Why Jew first and Greek? Well, we're, we're discovering that in Romans on Wednesday and Thursday. And there the faith, the believing, is something that God evokes through the Holy Spirit at the hearing of the gospel. Because faith comes by the message. And the message is the one about Christ. And our faith isn't in Christ for salvation. Our faith is in the gospel that we are justified by Christ's faithfulness. Our faith does not justify us. Christ's faithfulness justifies us. The faith that God gives us is the faith that Christ's faithfulness justifies us. 
That kills us dead. There's nothing for us there. There's nothing for me to do or even to be. I met the God who killed me deader than a doornail and made me alive in Christ. That means justification. There's a reason why he was handed over in Romans 4.25 for our trespasses and resurrected for our justification. Now follow me. Just stay with me just a little longer. Now, you've watched superhero movies, which to me are intensely, I hate to say this, boring as all hell. Because when you see the hero risen from the dead, there's no superheroes. Superhero movies are gleaning billions and billions and billions of dollars, and you concentrated on it, didn't you, for two hours. I'm only going one. Now then, the reason Paul uses the dikaio word so much in Romans, especially Romans, is he's combating a Jewish Christian gospel that proposes that a person could be justified in God's eyes by the human action of doing the works of the law. So you know what he does at the climax of an argument that really starts in Romans 1.1, but especially in 2.1, and he lets somebody else speak from 118 to 32, but he uses that and he lets it play into his argument. When he gets to 320, he quotes Psalm 143.2, and some people think he misquotes it, but he doesn't misquote it at all. He does like a Targum does. He interprets it properly. He said, for no flesh, that one's no one living, will be justified by the works of the law. By doing works, observance of Torah, in observance of Torah. No one will be, you say, that's not what the psalmist said. You just read Psalm 143 too. No one alive will be justified by any means at all. Paul's not contradicting that. He's saying, yes, that's true. Read the whole verse. No one alive will be justified in God's view. So how much more will anyone not be justified by the works of the law if there's no human means available in man or to man to be justified? How much more can I say then and conclude by that that no living being can be justified by the works of the law? He's giving the right interpretation of this to, and by 320, you know what he's done? He's hit the climax of the most brilliant rhetorical argument against the gospel of works or human faith ever given in the history of mankind. And so no wonder in 319, he's shutting every mouth in the whole damn world. Every mouth is shut. Well, I'm justified by work. Shut up. I'm justified because I believed in Jesus. I invited Jesus into my life, into my heart, and he repaired me. Shut up! That's not the gospel. That is a variant of the gospel. That's not the way of salvation. So you're playing church, and you got the crosses, and you got the statues, or you got the pictures you got the stained glass windows you got the altar you got the liturgy you got the palms 
but you don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who was that? Oh, I forgot. That's me now alive again. No. So Paul alludes to this with great effect against teachers who teach that people must be righteous in God's eyes or that they can be righteous in God's eyes. Well, I threw down my Jack Daniels, brought up my lucky strikes to the altar. Everybody saw me. Shut up. Why do I say shut up? Am I being unkind? Am I being vulgar? Am I being crass? Am I being crude? No, I'm just saying, hey, we're the whole world. Let's all shut up. Because now a righteousness from God is revealed apart from law, but testified to by the law, like Deuteronomy 32, 39, and the prophets like Isaiah 40 in verse 5. He uses it to great effect in Romans 3.20 and in Galatians 2.16. In Galatians 2.16, Paul juxtaposes the futility of human action, whether it's works or faith, against the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is God's act of deliverance in the Christ event. He doesn't say it's faith versus works. He says it's Christ's faithfulness versus your faith or your works. That's the contradictory dialectic in Romans. We're saved by grace through Messiah's fidelity outside of and apart from ourselves. Now that's important, I think, in Ephesians 2.8. Paul didn't misquote Psalm 143.2. Instead, he reasons. Be reasonable. He reasons there. That since Psalm 143.2 says that no living being can be justified or considered to be righteous in God's view, then certainly, if that's true, no one alive, no one living will be justified in his sight by doing works of the law. If there's no means whatsoever, then certainly the means by which people try to justify themselves through works doesn't work. In fact, Paul brings Psalm 143.2 into its true meaning here in a debate that he won big time. He was the big winner. And so in Romans 3.20, which is our focal verse here that I'm not even going to read. You can read it on your own. He is quoting no one alive. The verse, no one alive. He says no flesh here in Galatians 2.16 means the same thing. And in the Greek translation, it looks like this. P-A-S, pos, that means all without exception. And Z-O-N, Z-O-N, zone, pa zone. We're in the pa zone here, the all zone. No one living, and the word ooh is the emphatic negative, the emphatic negative. No, of all that live, none. No one living, no one living. 
will be justified in your sight by the works of the law. No living human being can be justified, rectified, made righteous in God's sight. Period. This is the period at the end of a rhetorical bout. Fifteen rounds, which Paul's gospel is the winner, and the gospel of human action loses big time. The ten count is over on the mat. False gospels, all of them gone. Psalm 143.2 says, No living human being can be justified in God's eyes. Paul heartily agrees. I do too. I called him. I said, Paul, do you heartily agree? He said, yes. I said, me too. He said, shut up. I got work to do. Bye. He simply reasons in the Holy Spirit that because no living human being can be justified in God's sight by any human means, then certainly no human being can be justified by the works of the law. This then, by 320, Psalm 143.2, delivered the fatal blow to the teachers whom he combats in Galatians and to the teacher or the whole false gospel and the resulting Jewish Christian judgmentalism against Gentiles is destroyed. And he also destroys Gentile bias against Jews in Romans 11. Paul demolishes it. No person alive is the mention of the message is the name of the message. No one alive can be justified in God's sight. Period. Termination of a declarative sentence. The negative ooh and the indicative dikaio. Nobody justified. This is the end of the matter. And it's the close of Paul's rhetorical case in which he establishes a universal homardiology. All have sinned. And parlays it into a universal soteriology. He brings justifying life to all as in Adam all die, so in Christ all would be made alive. And therefore, again, a universal homardiology, and he combines it with the impossibility of anyone living being justified in God's sight. Now, in closing, here's the implications of this. They're too astounding. They're too astounding. You can put a harpoon in this whale, but you can't reel him in. It's too big. The implications are so astounding that the only way that a living person can be justified in God's sight is to die and then be made alive again as a new creation. But this is why Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. And then in 221, if justification is by works, not just any work, not just works of the law, but by any works, Christ died for nothing. Now consider this in light of Paul's astonishing declaration again in 2 Corinthians 5.14. If one died for all, then all died. That has not come home to you yet. It hasn't come home to you yet. If one, the one man Christ Jesus, died for all, and he did, then all, humanity without exception, died. No one living 
can be justified. But all died. Now, that's why Paul said, I don't know anyone after the flesh. You know why? Because he knew that all died in Christ. You could go up to an unbeliever and say, did you know that you died in Christ and were made alive in him? It's not hitting home yet. I don't want it to. I want the Holy Spirit to have that pleasure, to let it dawn on you. So when one died, all human beings died. So what does this mean when the one was resurrected from the dead then? If all died when he died, what happened when he rose? What did he mean in John 14, 19? Because I live, you will live also. Because I live. Because the righteous one lives by his faithfulness. Who else lives by the righteous one's faithfulness if not all? Everything goes back to the vortex of the word to tell us die. It is finished. It was done then. It's done in the eternal God. It's done in the eternal God. I don't know anyone after the flesh. Anyone, Paul said. Because if anybody's in Christ, and that's everybody, there's the new creation. Not only does God kill in the old world and make alive in the new, he's already killed everybody in the old and made everybody alive in the new. For if one died for all, then all died. So again, what happens when the one who died for all, when all died, when the one rose, if not all rising? All rise! (laughs) I'm the bailiff. All rise. So, What does it mean that Jesus was handed over? Paradidomi. God handed over those evil pagans to do these terrible things. He did it three times. He handed them over. He handed them over. He handed them over, says the sermon of the Jewish Christian who wants to feel good about himself because he's condemning the pagan idolaters in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Handed a moment. Paul said, here, let me use the word paradidomy that you use three times. Romans 124, 126, 128. Let me use it in Romans 4, 25. Jesus Christ was handed over for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Who does he mean our trespasses? Who's the our? Well, first John comes in and tells us he is the propitiation for our sins but not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 2. He was handed over for our trespasses, the trespasses of the whole world. So he was raised for our, who's our? It, it says in Romans 5, 18, it explains, our justification means life and justification for all, every human being without exception. Do you have an issue with that? hasn't dawned on you yet. It's going to. Let me predict it might even dawn on you before Easter Sunday. You can have your own chocolate bunny. That's what Tony Sadar can't wait to have that, you know, that big bunny. But, you know, I met one of those one time and I said to him, You know, you're really sweet, but you're hollow inside. Never mind. Anyways, 
That's Easter. Really sweet, but hollow inside, unless it's filled with this gospel. Raised for our justification. That's one of those solid bunnies. No, it's not a hollow center. Never mind. Hey, man. Coming to take me away. Like Lazarus, the angels are coming to take me away. Now, closing number two. All died when Christ died for all. All are justified and made alive because Jesus Christ was justified in 1 Timothy 3.16 by the Spirit, by divine action. Jesus Christ was justified. How? No one alive is righteous in God's eyes. Jesus Christ was justified. He died and he rose again from the dead. All are justified and made alive because Jesus Christ was justified by being made alive in the spirit in 1 Timothy 3.16. All these things I'm saying today I've never said before in this direct order. And I have to leave the implications to the spirit. I'm not sure as a pastor. I'm not sure that we're grasping the implications of this. I'm not sure I am. I do know one thing. The river's taken me now. There's no stand to take in a specific denomination or group. There's no bias that exists any longer. There's no group bias, no cultural, no religious bias. There's no place to go except where the river takes us. I'm not sure we have the capacity to yet. Some of us do. Some of you do. My prayer is that we will grasp the implications of what this means. Because you know why? To do that, to grasp that, is to grasp with all saints what is the depth and the height, the breadth and the width of the love of Christ, which surpasses any normal or natural ways of knowing In any case, in the light of all this, the interpretation of the thesis verse in all of Romans comes to clear view. By the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed from God's faithfulness in Christ to Christ's faithfulness in us. For Jesus Christ, the righteous one, will live by his faithfulness, and so will all of us. I don't live by my faithfulness I live by the faithfulness of the son of God Galatians 2:20 I was crucified with Christ nevertheless I live and the life that I now live but it's Christ in me living not me and the life that I live in the flesh I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me So, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, lives by his faithfulness, and so does everybody else. Justification by our works leaves us alive in the old man. In other words, it's a false gospel. Justification by our faith leaves us alive in the old man. Justification by God's grace kills us and makes us alive in the new creation 
gives us a newness of life that's lived by the Spirit of God, not by our own steam. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May the implications of what we've announced today in terms of the gospel, what we've allowed you to announce through us, and as Brian's prayer said, what you have spoken by your spirit through the mouth of your servant. May the application of this, the implications of this, dawn on us. Not just to make us repaired, reformed, or better, but transformed by death and life, by being made alive with Christ.